uh, we're starting, um, I'm going to talk about Jesus and his birth because that's what we do. It's that time of year. And so we're going to talk to you this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. And what's interesting before I read this passage is that if you, don't, if you know anything about the scripture, if you don't, that's okay. That's why you're here. You were here to grow. We're here to learn. But Israel, the nation of Israel, ended up, they were a nation and ended up going into, a, into captivity for about 70, 80 years. They, 70 years, but they, anyway, long story. Let's just say 70 years. So Israel was taken away and they were taken into captivity. And what happened, Isaiah was written in a time where there was great transition in the nation. They had had a very popular king. His name was Uzziah. Uzziah had died. Isaiah actually begins the book by in the year that Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. And so the people had been trusting in their government. They had been trusting in their legal systems and all of their structures. And all of that came to an abrupt halt. But how many knows God doesn't care about human government? It's not that he doesn't care about it, but that, that, is not, that does not limit him. And the Bible says in the year that Uzziah died, the king Uzziah died, the Bible says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So no matter what your crisis is, one of the messages from, from uh, the book of Isaiah, it doesn't matter what it looks like and what things happen to you in, in circumstances. The Bible says what you need is you need to see the Lord. And so this book was written 100 years before Israel lost their freedom. And Isaiah is writing to them to try to encourage them to come back to the Lord. Prosperity had dulled their spirituality. They had been very prosperous under King Uzziah. He had, he had reigned for a very long time and he had set up a lot of very powerful economic structures and economic engines. And so the country was very blessed and they were very fortunate. But during that period, prosperity had dulled them to spirituality. The priests themselves becoming corrupted. The leaders of the people becoming corrupted. And as the leadership goes, so go the people within the house of God. And so it's important that leaders maintain spirituality or a hunger or a desire for greater things. Because if the leaders don't want it, the people will never get it. It's transferred to the people. And so what ended up happening was is there was a dullness that had entered. And so God raised up prophets during that time to speak to the people, to call them back. And in this process, God proclaims in Isaiah chapter 9 of a, of a greater day, of a better day, of something that's going to happen. In the Old Testament, there are two books that are profoundly accurate. Most all of them are, but two books that are extraordinary in their content. One of them is the book of Isaiah. There are Sephardic Jewish traditions, or there are Jewish uh, sects, uh, there are sects of Judaism that actually exclude the book of Isaiah from their teaching because they can't deal with the clarity by, in which Isaiah speaks of Jesus. The Bible speaks of the coming of the Messiah, speaks of his birth, speaks of his death, his resurrection, and, and not only his death, but the manner by which he is died, he, manner by which he dies. And it speaks with clarity. And what's extraordinary about that is that this book was written 600 years before Jesus came. God declares the end from the beginning. So he had spoken these things and declared these things out. The other book that they have a major problem with is the book of Daniel. They attacked Daniel like crazy. 
Daniel is so accurate that they say this cannot be written before the fact. This had to be written after the fact. They try to discredit Daniel. And so there are actually Jewish traditions today and where their leaders, they can't take these books, so they just remove them. That's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> we, don't, we don't like what it says, so let's just throw it out. Some of, the church, some of our churches are doing that today. That's, that's not what we're called to do. And so what Isaiah says is the people are in a, in a difficult time. They're going through difficult situations. They're trusting all of their systems they had trusted in had fallen apart. And the Lord is in, Isaiah begins to declare to them something that is coming in a better day. And he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This, of course, is talking about Jesus. He actually tells them in Isaiah 7 that he will be born of a virgin. So he not only tells that Christ is going to be born and who this one that's going to be born is going to be, it tells him he's going to be born of a virgin. The virgin birth is not some New Testament idea. It just didn't, we just didn't bake that up and say, oh, this would be a good idea. This was proclaimed 600 years before it actually happened. And it happened just as he said. Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, and what his death actually means. There's a lot of theology in those, in those chapters. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Let's just say it together. You guys want to read this together? Yes. Come on, let's just say this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice from this time forward, even forever. I love this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. What prop? Come on, yeah. Don't you feel good? Just declaring the word. So prophecies reveal the certainty of truth. So when God declares something before it actually happens, it is the it is the revelation that truth is certain. There's not. That's what separates the Bible. People want to know. Well, why is the Bible? Da, da, da. The Bible separated from every other book. Not only from the frame in which it was written, it was written over 1,500 years by a multitude of authors on a multitude of places and in a multitude of language, yet it has the same connected theme. It is a book that coincides and connects with itself. The Quran was written by one guy in 650 AD. The Quran is not even an ancient book. It is a modern, it is a medieval book. It was written by one dude. All of the, what separates the Bible from every other ancient writing, it doesn't matter, pick one, the Bhagavad Gita of, of Buddha, or who pick, pick anything. The writings of the, of the Krishnas, anything like that. What separates the, the Bible, even from the Greek poem, poets and all of, their, all of their writings, is its prophetic content and nature. Nothing compares. Nothing compares. It declares the end from the beginning. And everything happens just as God said it would happen. Do you know that? Do you know you're seeing it in your time and in your space? Do you know you're seeing it? Do you know you witnessed something last week? And if this fully comes to pass, which it will, it is a, it is a, it is a re revealing of, of, the, of the prophecy. Our president this year declared Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. This year. This is the year, what year is it, 2017? Am I correct? Yeah. 
1967, Israel took Jerusalem as their capital, but they never proclaimed it as their capital. 50 years is a jubilee year. It's when captives go free. It's when treasures are restored. It's when things shift. This year is 50 years from 1967. So it's 2017. So they couldn't have proclaimed uh, Jerusalem as the capital of 49 years. He couldn't have proclaimed it at 51 years. Jerusalem, according to God's economy, because that's where his eyes are, has to be proclaimed in the year of Jubilee. And so why does this president step up and go, we're going to Jerusalem and it's going to be the capital? That is the fulfillment of prophecy. It gets better. Oh, it gets even better. There's two prophetic calendars in, among the Jews. There is what's called a civil calendar and there's called a religious calendar. The Jewish people have two New Year's. We have one. We celebrate it in January. The Jews have a civil New Year, which is the year of their government, and it begins in September. They have a, they have a religious New Year, which is the year of their spirit. That begins in, in April at Passover, or April or March, depending on when, whenever Passover falls. So they have a governmental New Year that begins at Rosh Hashanah, and they have a spiritual New Year that begins at Passover. They have two New Years. So their New Year began in September. Not, not December, not January, not February. They're beginning to be, so we're, we are within the new year of the civil government of Israel, and here's this proclamation, within the new year of the government. So the proclamation is over the government. It will be the governmental capital of the city. So it's a civil declaration in the, civil, in the, in the time of the jubilee of the civil new year, if you understand this. There's going to be a spiritual new year. This year marks the spiritual renewal or the spiritual jubilee of Israel. So I tell people, sometime between... This Passover and next Passover, there's going to be something profoundly significant spiritually that happens in Israel. I don't know what it's going to be, but you can mark it down. You can mark it down. Something's going to happen. You, why is that? Because God is speaking. He is forever declaring, I am true. I'm the one in charge here. I'm the one that's in authority. There are certain areas where God does not release his sovereignty, and one of them is over the nation of Israel. That's his. Nobody's going to do anything to Israel unless he says so. And I've got news for you. He isn't going to say so. He's not saying so. That is, Israel will never not become a nation again. It will never fall. Ever. Ever. The Bible tells us that in the last days, the nations will rage against Israel. And what are they doing now? They're raging against Israel. And God said, I will make them a rock that they cannot pick up. They will not be able to move that little piece of land that lives about the size of Connecticut They've reduced it and reduced it and reduced it and reduced it and reduced it. They've, they've literally taken away all of the land that is rightfully belongs to them. Our United Nations, all these governments begin to rob Israel of their land. But they will not fully take it. They keep trying. They keep trying to even divide the land. God said, I'm going to push back. There's going to be a, a, a turbulence that comes upon you when you come to divide my land. Every time they try to divide the land, something bad happens. There's turbulence here. So what's my point? My point is your God is a prophetic God. Your God is prophetic in his nature, and his decrees will stand. They will stand. And for a lot of people, the world, that thing just flies right over their head. Right over their head. You know? And then we begin to believe the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age rages against the Jewish people. I'm not saying the Jewish people are correct. I'm not saying they're right in everything that they do. But God's eye is on them. You understand that? And so there's all of this division that's being stirred up towards that, that nation. But if you understand it from the biblical context, God is doing something there, and that land is key to the end times. It's key to prophetic, prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah is a, is a prophetic book. It is fulfilled. Christ was born of a virgin. 
It's just absolutely true. Isaiah 7 says he will be born of a virgin. It tells us this. This is, again, a message to us. Unto us. This is what Christians got to understand. Jesus did not come down for his own vanity. He, there was no need for him out of his own selfishness or whatever, whatever need that he may have had within himself. God actually told David, if I needed something, I'm not going to tell you. But he said, if God needed something, he did not need to come down. He did not need to humble himself. He did not need to do that. He did it for you. That's incredibly important for you to understand. He did it for you. Well, what's so special about me? Nothing. Nothing. He set his love on you. He set his affections on you. Jesus came as us, and he came for us. To do what? To make a way home. He came for you, and he is a gift. This is important to know, too. Jesus is a gift. He came for you. He came as you. That's why he was born of a virgin. He was born of the, he was born of the human by, by his mother, but he was not born of the seed of Adam. He was born of the seed of heaven. Adam's seed had become corrupted through the, the, the sin, so God was born of something else, but he had to come as us, and he is your gift. And my question to you this morning is, have you made him your own? Are you an observer of the gospel? Are you an observer of Christianity? Or have you, have you truly owned Christ? Is he, is he yours? And are, better yet, are you his? That's the question. Do you belong to him? And does he belong to you? Or do you just stand and watch like we're, we're, an up, we're a spectator country. We just kind of observe everything. We watch everything. Jesus isn't to be watched. He's to be encountered. The Bible says unto us. It says a child is born. What does this mean? God became man. So here's what's going on. This prophet is seeing a vision. He's seeing this. And he's doing his very best to try to describe what he's seeing. You ever read Revelation? John's describing what he's seeing, and he's doing the best that he can. I don't know. Looks like gates of pearls to me. Uh, walls of jasper. Does that mean it's literally jasper? It may not be jasper, but that's the only way he can perceive what he's seeing. Streets of gold. Is it gold? Could be. But it may be something even greater than gold that we don't even know about, and it's the only thing that he can perceive. So the, the prophets oftentimes are writing according to what they can understand or what, they, what their perception is of what it is that they're seeing. And so here's Isaiah trying to understand a child is born, a son is given. So he's a son, and then he's going to say again he's everlasting father. So he's kind of having these contrasts even in the things that he's saying because he's not fully able to understand what he's writing. He's just trying to be faithful in what God is showing him and write what he is showing him. The Bible says a child is born. God became us. Jesus came down weak and vulnerable. Born like a baby. Isn't that crazy? He made a body for himself inside of Mary. Well, who made Jesus? He made a body. You say, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't make any sense. Well, where did you come from? Did you come from monkeys? You know? My Bible says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My Bible says he knit me together in my mother's womb, forming me, knitting me. My Bible says he created man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's where I come from. Oh, I come from a primordial soup where some crazy-looking creature just somehow, some way, we don't know how, where the primordial soup came from. It came from nothing. 
Really? I got news for you. Something never comes from nothing unless Jesus is involved. There's only one who has the power, which is called bara. Bara is the creative word in the Hebrew that means something from nothing. Man does not possess the power of bara. We cannot create something from nothing. We have to have something in order to create something. Nature itself cannot create something from nothing. Nature needs something in order to create something. It needs a seed. It needs something in order for it to reproduce. So neither man, nor time and space, nor creation itself has the ability to create something from nothing. But the Bible tells us in the, in the first chapter of the book of Genesis that God possesses that power. In the beginning, God created. It is the Greek Hebrew word bara, and it means something from nothing. That's what it means. You say, I don't have anything. God will, use, will create something from nothing. He'll create something in your life from nothing. He'll create the, something from the nothingness of your life. He'll turn you into something. You say, I'm nothing. Well, you're in a great spot. You're at a great point. If you give your life to Jesus, because he's the one who creates something from nothing. So Jesus was born weak and vulnerable. God became man. This is the mystery of mysteries. It amazes me in our scientific society how we put so much faith in some evolutionary concept. We put so much faith in science as if we know what we're talking about. We don't have a clue. I got news for you. You ever been to the doctor? Huh? And oh, we just elevate our science like we just know what we're doing. You know what the, you know what the theory is with doctors? They call it a practice. That's what it is, because they don't know. So they're practicing on you. That's true. That's why you go in and they ask you, how's that medication working? And they're taking copious notes while you're talking to them. Because they are learning from you. They're just throwing stuff at you to see if it works. And if it works, then they, you know, oh, that worked. Well, it worked with her. Let's try it with her. They're practicing. They don't know what they're doing. People don't know what they're doing. We don't. The height of our knowledge is foolishness. The Bible says the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. What realm do you want to live in? I don't want to realm, live in the realm of men where there's foolishness. I, wanted God, I want my knowledge to come from on high. I want wisdom and revelation to come from the one who is the author of wisdom and revelation. And we defeat ourselves by placing our trust in human intellect. Human intellect means nothing unless it's submitted unto Christ. Then it becomes powerful. Intellect is our gift. But that gift is never meant to be self-serving. It is meant to be submitted unto Jesus. And God will take that intellect and take it to a whole other level. He came as us. Jesus' Bible tells us this. He came and he sympathizes and understands our weakness. He's been tempted in all things yet without sin. He's weak just like he came. He understood. He bore the same pain you bore. Bible says he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. My son the other day looked at me and goes, man, dad, life's hard. He's 17 years old. <laughs> it's like, man, life's hard. Jesus came into this world and he became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He understands in order that he could understand and you could know that he knows exactly what you're going through. So it says this child is born. It says the son is given. So here again, the prophet's going, okay, a child's born, son's given, okay, he's kind of like not trying to understand this because the idea of the son being given was, this, was a divine gift. So we have a human child being born, but we have some sort of a divine gift being imparted. So he wasn't quite able to understand what was going on there. We understand it because we look back at it. 
When we're looking forward into something or into a prophecy, we don't fully understand it. The Bible says we see in a, in a, through a veil. We see in a glass dimly lit. Because we're not fully able to understand what's being said. This idea that the Son is given, it speaks of His identity. Jesus' number one title was what? You know what He called Himself more than anything else? Son of Man. Do you know that? More than any other title that Jesus referred to himself as, not what people called him, but how he spoke of himself, he called himself the son of man. What's he saying? I came for you. I came for you. I came as you. Son of man is actually a messianic title that comes from the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, the Messiah is called son of man. And so Jesus was saying, I am the prophetic fulfillment of the Messiah that Daniel spoke of. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who understand what I'm saying. He was referencing Scripture when he was declaring him that. But at the same time, he wants you to know that he came for you. He wants you to know that I'm here for you. I'm not here for me. You're not here for me. I'm here for you. And once you get me, to, once you understand that and you begin to receive from me, then you can begin to give. You cannot give from a deficient source. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Even if you, it's not about money, it's about faith. Faith is our currency. So by faith we give, by faith we love, by faith we serve, all of these things. But we are deficient until we submit ourselves to Christ. Until we begin to receive his love and his kindness, we can never fully be kind or never be fully gracious. It's just true. The Son of Man speaks of his identity. It speaks of our restoration he existed in the form of God. He did not regard his equality with God to be something that was grasped, but he emptied himself. In other words, what the Bible's saying is Jesus took off his deity and put on humanity. Timelessness stepped into time. Eternity came through the wall of time and came down as you and me. What? And you thought it was just some little crazy Easter story or Christmas story. The gospel and the kingdom is spiritual. Every single thing it speaks about relates to power in the Spirit. And anytime it's referencing something that's natural, it's always connected to the supernatural. And so we got to understand that all of the stuff in its origin is divine. All of the stuff that we have access for and all of these things that Jesus did came from the Spirit. And so we can't receive them until we understand that. He emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant. What does that mean? He lowered himself to the lowest place he could go. He was born in a shed. Okay? The most minimalist structure you could find is where Jesus was born. He wasn't born in a palace. He lowered himself as low as he could go. He took on the form of a servant. He lived as a homeless man. Did you know that? Son of man has no place to lay his head. He was completely dependent upon the gifts and the offerings of everyone around him. Why did he do that? Because he's trying to show us how humble we need to be? No, he came beneath us. Jesus, in order to lift us up, in order to lift up all of humanity, he had to go beneath the lowest point of humanity in order to do that. So he couldn't come as a king. He couldn't come as his lordship. He couldn't come in his dazzling glory because that would still be above us. So he had to lower himself beneath us and literally be a vagabond. That's what he did. He became the lowest of all of us and lifted us up. He washed feet. You guys know that story, right? They jumped up and started freaking out because they knew what that meant. They're like, Lord, you're not a slave. You're not a servant. <laughs> but what he was doing again is he is permitted to be so. He did it in order to do that. He served. 
The government should be upon his shoulders. Here's a great question. What government? What government? The government of heaven, Christian. Jesus didn't come with human government. He came with heaven's government. He came with the power of the heavens upon himself. He is the final answer. He is the final rule of heaven. His decrees are so. Did you know that? It's a completely different world. You and I are not under a system of government that is of this world. We are under a system of government that is of heaven. We are not under a culture that is of this world. We are not to participate and manifest a culture that is of this world. We are to participate and manifest a culture that is of heaven. We are a kingdom-cultured people. That's why we're in the world, but we're not of it. You ever heard that taught? I teach you guys this all the time. We teach it like, well, we're in the world, but not of it. You know, we're like this with the world. Keep everybody away. Everybody away. No R-rated movies that aren't about Jesus. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. At any time, at any place, any time, anywhere. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about some external purity. He's talking about an internal attitude of the heart. The world is a world of greed. We're a people of generosity. The world's a world of hate and selfishness. We're a people of self-sacrifice and love. The world is a people of carnality and, and fleshly nature. We are a people of the spirit. The, the world is a place of human limitation and human power. We are a people of kingdom power and the dynamic release of the spirit. It's a complete different contrast. That's what he's talking about. You are this in this place. This is what you are in this place. It should set you free. You know, Christians run around trying to be governed by externals. He has no interest in externals. Why do you think he washed the hands in front of the priests? He, do, he did things intentionally to tick them off. I don't know if you know that. He loved it. He loved it. I love it. There's so many passages in the scripture where God, where they're like, Lord, you, you offended the Pharisees, Peter was saying. He's like, oh, I offended them? He's like, well then, let me say a little bit more. Now that I got them all ticked off, and now that I got them right where I want them, now that I've offended their selfish pride, let me say a little bit more. They looked at him on the Sabbath as to whether he's going to heal. He's healing in the synagogue with a man with a withered hand. And they said they looked at him with intent. Is he going to do anything? Jesus looked at him and said, what? Are you guys serious? You, you think this is wrong? And he said, come here, stretch out your hand. In front of them all. He didn't do it in a back corner. He did it in front of them. Because he was coming right up against their religious nature. He was coming right up against their religious spirits and their selfish pride. And he was showing them, you don't understand kingdom dynamic. You don't understand the heart of my father. You do not understand. I love it. We think he's fairy Jesus, just floating around, putting a little kind, little, you know, just fairy Jesus. Ooh. Man, this dude's a lion. A lion. Nobody takes my life, I lay it down. <laughs> you're not taking this from me. I'm laying it down. The Bible says he willed his own death on the cross. You don't think he's Lord? Can you will your own death? Like literally, I will my death. <laughs> That's what he did. Eli, Eli you know, he, did, he went through the whole thing and the Bible says he gave up his spirit. He yielded it. His body didn't expire until he said his body's going to expire. He's God. It's the government, of the, of the, the government is on his shoulders. This is a near-far prophecy. So this is something that's fulfilled in the near and something that's fulfilled in the far. If you're going to understand, if you're going to particularly Old Testament prophecy, even some of the new, there's something called near-far. When the Bible speaks, this is how powerful God's words are. 
Even when a prophetic word is released over your life, oftentimes that, that word has something that applies to you in the immediate, but it means something even greater down the road. It's called near far. So when Isaiah is saying the, the government is on his shoulders, that is a near far prophecy. Christ came with the government of heaven upon his shoulders, and he's actually released it to you, in case you didn't know that, right? That is the near fulfillment of that prophetic word. But there is a far fulfillment of that word. Jesus is coming in full. He's returning. And he, his government will rule the earth. Did you know that? Oh, happy day. It's going to be a government where there's peace. There's going to be a government where there's love. It's going to be a government where there's grace. It's going to be a government where there's equity, equality, justice. That's the far fulfillment. And this is where the church focuses. We like to, the church has been locked in an ideology of, of the sweet by and by. Well, it's all going to happen when we get there. Or it's all going to happen when Jesus came. We don't understand what he actually did. We don't understand what's available to us right now. And always the argument is, well, if this is available, then why don't we see it? Because you don't know how to activate it. And neither do I, to a large extent. That's why we're practitioners of this faith. We begin to practice and practice and practice until we start seeing the things that God said manifest. That's what we're supposed to do. But we're dynamically lazy. We really are. We're lazy. Oh, you mean I got to sweat? Yeah, you got to sweat. You mean there's a little bit of heavy lifting involved? Well, he does all the heavy lifting, but he needs your participation. He needs you to partner with it. And so the church casts off what Christ has come. We have the government of heaven on our shoulders. Did you know that? Christ is the head of all things under the church. So he is the government. His government rests with us. Uh, we have the government. We are, in a, we are in authority. We are in spiritual authority. Speaking of spiritual authority, if you're interested, we're doing a spiritual authority seminar. And you can sign up for that at the counter. And, and the, why are we doing that? Because you guys need to understand. We, as a people, as, as believers, need to understand the authority that is properly given to us. We're in authority. We're in authority. We can shift governments through prayer. We can shift cities through... through there's, all, we, there's all of these things that the power has been given to us. And the enemy constantly tries to neuter the power of the church. And one of the main ways he keeps the power neutered is he keeps us in ignorance, where we don't know. And then the second way he tries to do it is he teaches us falsely. He begins to get teachers over us that teach us falsely. And I'm not talking about heresy. They tell you Jesus Christ is Lord. He rose from the dead. You know, he's saved, he's the only savior. But we have churches that teach that, that's an orthodox position, which means it's what the Bible says. But they teach other things that are unorthodox. God doesn't heal. Says who? Right? There are no miracles for today. Says who? That is an unorthodox position, and that is not in your Bible. They tell us that the believer doesn't have any authority, and everything that comes into our life is just a gift from God, so we need to embrace it. Embrace the good, embrace the bad, because it's a gift from God. Okay, well, that sounds wonderful, tingly, and philosophical, right? And that gives me a little human, little woo. But that's, unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. You understand that? So we have to begin to understand what the Scripture says and begin to go with that. People, human beings, create doctrines to justify cowardice. We create doctrines to justify us being chickens. And we create doctrines to justify us being powerless, we can't manifest power, so we create a doctrine. Well, it couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> God's power just isn't available for today. No, brother, it's you. 
So you have to realign, and whatever's not happening in order for the power to flow, that has to be addressed. Or you're too cowardly to go and tell people about Jesus. So we create a doctrine called uh, irresistible grace, right? Calvinism, because we don't want to actually go and actually have the responsibility to tell anybody about Jesus. And so we create a false doctrine that's not in the Bible, can be easily dismantled, that says whoever God's going to save is who God's going to save. We don't need to do anything. Well, who told you that? But this is what we indoctrinate the believer with. We teach these things, and we sow these things into the life of the church, and we wonder why there's no life. And we wonder why there's no power. There's no power. We have to move beyond that. His name shall be called. This is my favorite part. This is the Greek word. That word called in the Greek is kaleo. Say it with me, kaleo. It means to be summoned. His name shall be summoned. You know what Jesus said? Whatever you say in my name, you can summon my name. You can summon my authority. You can summon what I've given to you. His name shall be called. So we're going to call him something. We call forth the one who is wonderful. We call forth the counsel of the living God that is ours by right of inheritance. There's no confusion. People don't see Jesus as wonderful because you've never really taken the time to perceive him. Have you ever perceived him? Taken the time to actually look at him? And have you ever actually seen how intricately he has worked in your life? Or how beautifully he has executed things in your life? And have you ever went, wow, that is wonderful. Do you know that no other gate will open to you until you enter in through the gate of thanksgiving? You will never experience multiplied wonder until you begin to be grateful for the wonders that are in your life right now. Did you know that? Well, God hasn't done anything for me in 10 years. Well, why don't you go back and give him the glory that he deserves for what he did 10 years ago? And maybe some other gates will open to you when you enter the gate of thanksgiving. Just a thought. He is wonderful. He is full of wonders. Did you know that? Full of wonder. Lord, we release your wonder. Lord, show me wonder in my life. Show me your wonder. I don't even know what wonder looks like, but I want to wonder what wonder looks like, and I want to see some of the fullness of your wonder. Counsel. These things relate to intimacy. These two words, wonderful and counselor, relate to intimacy. You have to, when it's wonderful, it means look at with intent. Have you looked at him with intent? It's kind of the idea of romance. All right, ladies, this one's for you. You want that man to look at you and notice little things about you, don't you? And see how wonderful you are. See my eyes. See my personality. See my nature. Notice something about me. And what that requires is it requires the man to look at her with intent. Men want to be respected. They want to be honored. They want to be reverenced for the person that they are. In order for the woman to do that in his life, she has to look at him with intent. Huh? You have to change the way you're looking and you have to see something differently. In order to see the wonder of God, you have to look at him differently. Counsel, you have to ask for it. Have you asked for it? This word counsel and console are the same thing. They relate to each other. So God will console you. Do you need consolation? You feeling down? You feeling broken? You feeling, you know, you, I mean, it's like, I just don't have it, Lord. I need your comfort. I need you to console me. He will, but you have to ask. He needs your counsel. You need his wisdom. The Bible says wisdom was with me from the foundation of the earth. God put wisdom as one of the key pieces of what he does. He will counsel you. There's nobody like Jesus. 
You need a word. I don't know what to do. You need the counsel of the Lord. You need the wisdom of the Almighty, and then you need the courage to be attached to it to do what he tells you. John 7. This is how people talk. Nobody ever spoke like this. He blew them away. You know that? You ever read some of the things he says, and you're like, what? That's crazy. He says amazing things. So it tells us this. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. What does this mean? God can forgive sin. Did you know that? Nobody can forgive your sin and not just forgive you, but cleanse you. That's what he tells them again in Isaiah. The people wanted the forgiveness of sin. He says, though you wash with much lye and much soap, yet your sin remains. Why did their sin remain? Because they had never offered it to him. He's the only one that can cleanse sin. Right? He's the only one that not only forgives it. The Bible says if we are faithful to confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Jesus not only forgives sin, he takes away the guilt, the shame. He forgives you. He releases you from the debt that sin incurs. He's defeated Satan. Nobody can defeat Satan. Huh? I don't know if you ever did, you ever encountered anything spiritual. I do it all the time. Not bragging. It's just a reality of my world. Not asking for it. Those beings are a little bit more powerful than me. If you've ever encountered demonic forces, they're a little bit more powerful than you. But in Christ, you are dominantly more powerful than them. Because he's the one. Come on. He's the one. He's the one. The Bible says, for this reason, the Son of God was manifest or made known. For this reason, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil were to separate man from, his father, from our father, to bring us into slavery, to hold us captive to fear, to hold us captive to false identities. All of these things is what J Satan has done. And Jesus says, my purpose in coming is to openly, he didn't do it in a corner, he did it openly. Colossians says he openly triumphed over the devil. Openly. He said, everybody watching? He's got his foot on the devil's head. He said, everybody looking? We all got it? We all good? Yeah, we all see it. Boom. He kicked off. He has no problem. He openly triumphs over the devil. The devil will not shame his people unless you allow him to. He will not dishonor you unless you allow him to. That's the issue. He's not owning me. He tries. He tries to visit me, send me some FedEx packages and say, hey, this is for you. I'm like, uh, no, don't think so. Send that right back where it belongs. That smells like smoke. It doesn't smell like heaven to me. You can take that right down the road. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Everlasting Father. So here it is. What is so here we have, again, the contrast with the prophet. He's saying a son is given an fa Everlasting Father. I'm sure he's kind of confused. Is he a son? Is he a father? Which one is he? Is he a child? Is he divine? Is he, wh which one? I'm sure he was confused. What, what, he did, what they were doing is they were missing the point. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. It's a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three, Ehad, but one. In him all things were created. Christ is the agent of creation. Things in the heaven, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He created you. He created you. He created you with a purpose. He created you on purpose with a purpose. Your purpose will never, ever, ever be achieved outside of him. Never. I'm going to go to school and get my PhD. Go get it. Go get four of them. I knew a guy who had two. And he was depressed alcoholic. He not only had two PhDs, he was teaching graduate level classes at the University of Southern California, or UCLA, and he was a depressed alcoholic. So if you think getting your PhD, go, go get it. I'm not just trying to take that from you at all. 
But I'm trying to tell you, there's no life there. You know, it's a good thing to have, but see, that needs to be submitted unto the Lord. You will never reach your purpose or your destiny outside of Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. He created you. And how did he create you? Through him and for him. You're created for him. You understand? And he has goodness for you. He created you with a purpose, a mission, and a destiny that can only be actualized and realized in his presence and through his glory. He's the prince of peace. I'm going to wrap it up real quick. He's the ruler of peace. He brings it, he grants it, he empowers us, and he shows us the way into it. I'll talk a little bit more about that maybe next service. His spirit is sent to the church to establish and empower heaven's government. And we are to do this without limits. That's what the Bible says. Of the, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. What does that mean? That's near and that's far. Christ has empowered his church to expand his, his government. Did you know that? We are on this earth to expand the rulership of heaven upon the earth. Plain and simple. We are about our father's business. Our father's in the, he's in the restoration business. I've had people, I tell you guys this over the years, we sit down, pastor, churches and organisms, it's not a business. I remember reflecting on that and asking the Lord, and the Lord goes, it's your father's business. Of course it's a business. Who told you it wasn't a business? We are about our father's business, which means we should be systematic, we should be organized, we should be investing, we should be risk takers, but we should be about our father's business. We should be bringing heaven to earth, influence, we should create businesses that create jobs that bless people, that bless the world. We should be doing that. We should be blessing neighborhoods, reclaiming territory, renewing that. We should be setting people free spiritually, emotionally, physically. We should be doing that. That's the business we're in. That's not God's business. It's our business. He's given it to us. We are to increase his government without end. He doesn't put a limit on it. Well, I don't want to go too far. Well, who told you you could go too far? He said of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. That's the near, the far is when he comes. His government, the Bible says his knowledge of the earth, Lord will fill the earth as water fills the sea. Upon the order of da the David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it. So I don't want to get into this, but I do want to say this. He will establish it with judgment and justice. This idea of judgment is manner and methods. The kingdom operates through manner and through methods. The kingdom is not random. God's just not random. He's not chaotic. There are methods and there are manners by which he operates and there are methods and there are manners by which his kingdom operates and there are methods and there are manners by which his spirit is released. It's not random. It's not chaotic. He has ordered it in such a way. You give you, I'll give you a real simple one that you can understand. The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. Stick around for the next worship service and begin to enter into the worship and tell me if his spirit is not released to you. Tell me, oh, I got a little like warm feeling when we sang that song. No, let the presence of God come to you. Let him come to you. That is a manner and an order by which he has established the releasing of his spirit in a congregation. Just a thought. From that time forward, even for now or more, this last part. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The kingdom has been sent forth. It is coming in its fullness. This idea is zeal and, and passion. What we just read this morning and what I just read to you this morning, the Bible says it is the passion of God to fulfill this. But he cannot and he will not do it without participation from his people. We have to partner with him. What is zeal and passion? It is something that you desire and you're willing to suffer for it. Did you know that? Is there anything you want so bad 
that you would give anything for it, or you're willing to endure great pain or great sacrifice to have it. You're passionate about that. That's what God is talking about. That's, that's passion. Passion means to suffer. I will suffer for that. I will endure great cost for that. Jesus will endure great cost, or he has endured great cost, in order for this to come to us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son of given. And the government of heaven rests with him. Did you know that? So my challenge to you, maybe go home, read Isaiah 9, and just begin to meditate on that part of the, part of the verse from 9-7 on. And just begin to re- meditate on that passage of Scripture. Begin to ask the Lord, what does this mean? Show me this. Let me understand this better. How does this relate to me? You know, just begin to meditate on that. Let it be a meditation for you, even this week. Let God reveal some things to you. So let's pray. Father, we just give you glory. We thank you so much that you are good. Thank you, Lord, that it's unto us. It's like you said in the book of Luke, peace on earth and goodwill towards men whom mankind has found favor. We have found favor with you. You have chosen to love us, Lord. And we want to acknowledge that you came for us. We want to acknowledge that we are created for you. Even if our minds do not fully grasp that, even if our our being doesn't totally embrace that, we want to acknowledge that this is true, even by faith. And we want to honor you. We want to honor you this Christmas season. If you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, you have never asked Jesus into your heart, I'm not talking about a prayer. I'm talking about the exchange of your being where I give all that I am to you, Lord, and I receive all that you are unto me. If you have never done that this morning, we're going to say a prayer, and I ask you to pray that prayer with us, and I ask you to step into that and receive from the Lord what he has for you. Let's just pray that out. Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. Come on, pray with me. And I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. All that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.